Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about the labor of design discourse. This week on the show, I'm joined by Nicholas Karodi. I have known Nicholas for a few years now from his work writing for the website Archonnect, as well as editing their print publication, Ed. But he is not just an architecture writer. He is also an artist, a designer, a theorist who works between video and graphic design and web design and curation and editing. With Joanna Kloppenberg, he's one half of Adjustments Agency, a sort of studio and artistic practice that investigates the architecture of architecture, as they call it. And he just launched earlier this year a new initiative called Interiors Agency, which focuses on research, writing, and thinking about interior design and decorating. So in this conversation, we talk about all of those things. We talk about his background studying liberal arts and his sort of sideways entry into architecture. We talk about working between mediums and using different formats to further architecture and design discourse. And we talk about writing and his process and the role of writing in his work. This is a a really interesting one. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that features behind-the-scenes content, links and articles from former guests about design and writing and criticism, as well as previews of upcoming episodes. Scratching the Surface is fully supported through these memberships, so if you like the show and want to help with its ongoing production, I hope that you will consider joining. Thank you, as always, for listening, and enjoy this conversation with Nicholas Carodi. have known your work for a couple years now and I've thought of your work or I've thought of you primarily as a writer uh, and as a writer about architecture uh, mostly through your work at uh, at Archonnect Mm -hmm. Uh, but I feel like that does kind of a disservice (laughs) to you and and your work I feel like you do a lot of different things in addition to writing I I feel like you you work in kind of more visual art space video design architecture you're kind of doing a lot of different things and i kind of want to start with that and i'm kind of curious about your background and and how you got into doing all of this stuff did you did you come from an architecture or a writing background sure um well actually i kind of i came from a liberal arts background which might make sense okay. of it i went to vassar college mm-hmm. for undergraduate um mm-hmm. and there i actually i studied um i studied architecture kind of obliquely i i studied um <laughs> I, I tell you, what does that mean? I think it's Tobias Armburst, uh, who is the principal at Interborough. Um, so that was kind of like mm. one pole of my education. Um, and he, you know, so his work is, or their work is very much, um, it, it's, it, it kind of challenges a lot of the normative presuppositions of architecture about kind of the, the role and presence of the author, um, the, the kind of privileging of the architectural object at the expense of other things. And um, the education he gave was, you know, very, it was kind of funny because it was both on the one hand, uh, very non-traditional um, in that we were really deconstructing a lot of the primary tenets of architectural uh, education. But on the other hand, um, we never learned, I never learned, I still don't know how to use uh, CAD software. <laughs> like a floor plan kind of I was never even very good at that um but then the other <laughs> the other kind of side of that was that uh, kind of concurrently um uh, uh my my college allowed us to really 
study whatever we wanted. And I, I really kind of fell into um, continental philosophy, particularly under the tutelage of um, a woman named Giovanna Boradori, who's um, she was a, a philosopher who trained under Derrida and Deleuze. And um, so she kind of, I, I, I kind of, I think it all kind of coalesced uh, during my undergraduate thesis, which feels like a, a million years ago and was a truly terrible thing that I produced, but was really fun and they let me do whatever I wanted to do, um, which was really kind of like um, badly uh, digesting Derrida and trying to make sense of uh, a lot of how mm-hmm. um, yeah. but, um, that's I awesome. think that's kind of where I, I kind of like, I started at the get-go, uh, kind of askew from architecture. Um, and, and then kind of when I entered architecture a few years later, in the kind of sense of the profession and, and more typical sense of the discipline, I was kind of surprised by what, you know, I thought everyone already felt, but I found out right. very quickly it was not the case. Right. Um, but so then after after that, um, actually, I, I worked for several years um uh, like professionally as, um, editing, uh, Italian political journal. Um, okay. that was like, yeah, very unrelated to architecture. And then, um, my kind of primary, uh, practice was within the field of contemporary art. And I, um, I, I exhibited as a video artist primarily, but then I also worked, um, in a collective, an art collective, um, that was kind of like an eco art collective. And, and we, we, you know, we exhibited kind of widely and had some success. Um, and it was an interesting experience. It, it, it was really kind of uh, pivotal in shaping kind of my I, relationship to a variety of media and um, I guess the um, fluidity of my uh, usage of media that you were mentioning. Um, but mm-hmm. um, I quickly, or maybe slowly, I don't know, over, over a few years, I, I kind of became a little allergic to the art world. Um, and, um, particularly that was kind of like, I mean, I, I could drone on about my, my <laughs> theory. I have time. Uh, um, um, I don't know if it's like the time or place for that, but, um, really, I think, you know, the, the, the economy of it freaked me out. Um, and right. to, yeah. to the, to, to both the kind of relationships among, uh, it's, you know, like people who are by and large in similar positions forced into a competitive uh, kind of competition that was a little um, mm-hmm. brutal and not necessarily productive um, and mm-hmm. not like anyone was really winning anyway. So it seems stupid. Um, oh, and then this kind of feeling um, I got, I got, I was, I entered into this uh, kind of strange project um, pretty much by happenstance that was uh, run by uh, the curator Hans Ulrich Obrist and Simon Kastner. Oh yeah. Um, this thing called 89 plus, which was, um, about trying to showcase the work of artists or practitioners in a variety of fields before and after 89, which was like super arbitrary. Although like shout out to Simone and Hans for giving me like a lot. Um, but um, I did have the feeling that I was, uh, there was this kind of being like thrust into, um, a, a mode of exposure or, um, that, I wasn't equipped for ready for my practice wasn't developed towards. And so I kind of just ran away from it. And, um, Mm. by some sort of luck, I don't really remember how I got hired by Arconnect as a writer. And uh, (laughs) at first I really didn't conceive of myself as a writer. 
Um, I still don't really, yeah. to be honest. Um, I, I'm not necessarily sure. I think I have a great prose, but um, oh, that's interesting. Uh, but uh, yes, yeah, so I, I started working there, and I had a great editor when I first started, Amelia Taylor Hawkberg, who taught me a lot. And then I eventually became editor myself. And then uh, he allowed me to start my own print journal, and things kind of started from there. And I, I think I maybe developed something of a voice over that time. But yeah, that's 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 a quick. Right. quick one. I, uh, it, there's so much in there that I feel like we can talk about. So I'm going to try to I'm going to try to pick out a couple of things that I, I I'd love for you to talk more about. Um, and we'll try to then connect it back to the kind of work that you're doing today. But you said something very very briefly at the beginning that you studied architecture kind of obliquely and within this larger liberal arts program what was your relationship to architecture at that time was that something you were interested in did you have a sense that maybe you would be an architect well how did you find yourself in that class or studying that within this kind of larger uh liberal arts program that you were in that's that's a great question i'm I'm not, I'm not sure if I remember exactly okay. what led me to architecture besides maybe kind of like thinking it seemed cool at first. Um, mm. It was okay. a rather rapid turnaround though. Um, I think I read Bataille too early, Georges Bataille, who um, writes mm, yeah. um, uh, quite a bit, kind of most famously like Against Architecture, quite literally is the title of a book about his writings on architecture. Um and I, I think I got some kind of uh, oppositional attitude that was developed really early on. Um, and um, mm. so I, I don't think it was really quickly that I realized I didn't want to design. And I was really started getting interested in, in other modes of spatial practice, but also I think more kind of generally the ways in which um, our ideas of what architecture could be, it just felt like incredibly uh, mm. limited to me. Um, in terms of the range mm-hmm. of modes of spatial practice that are already existing, but don't get counted as architecture. Um, but also um, just in terms of like kind of its own internal discourse and kind of, it just felt like it was generating a lot of sound and fury, but very signifying very little. And you you were kind of feeling this or thinking this while you were in school. Was it this, you, while you were in school, you were, you were also, you were kind of taking these architecture classes, you're also kind of on this philosophy track, mm-hmm. you were seeing kind of connections between those and and kind of realizing, I feel like there's something interesting here, but I don't want to be a designer. Is that? Yeah, exactly. Is, is that kind of timeline, right? Yeah, that's okay. about right. I mean, there was definitely a period um, of about maybe a year and a half where I was checking Arc Daily every day. And, um, <laughs> and yeah. things were really cool. And then I remember like the first... Uh, like the, one of the only models I ever produced um, of like an actual building um, was kind of this like rip off Herzog de Meuron thing. And it was okay. super, super cool, super radical. And I remember some critic came, th- that was the funniest thing about uh, the architecture courses, the design courses at Vassar was they'd invite critics as if it was, you know, a regular architecture program and never really adequately prepped them to the fact that we were, mostly like right uh like kind of like the history of the urban violences more than design form and that we didn't know our way around autocad at all so they'd come in and be like what the hell is this thing that i literally can model with twigs and um and uh, i remember one of them just like ripped 
<laughs> whipped it off. And I was just <laughs> totally stunned. And that's probably like the most minor of all kind of like the, the yeah. moves that happen in a crit. Like having been in crits now since then, I, I'm like, I have a lot to think about crits in general and themselves. But I think that was kind of this thing that I'm like, wait, it doesn't even matter. I mean, like, what is like, there's so many other things that can be talked about. <laughs> what I find so interesting in all of this is, you know, like I like I kind of began the conversation that you're working across all of these different mediums or you have over the course of your your kind of working life worked across all of these different mediums. And what's interesting to me is it sounds like that was kind of a part of your practice from the earliest kind of undergrad experiences in this world. Did you see you know, I guess the question that I'm kind of getting to is you're in these architecture classes, you're in these philosophy classes, you're making video art and thinking about space. Were you seeing connections between these things? You knew you didn't want to be an architect, but you were kind of taking these classes thinking this is going to filter back into uh, art practice. What What was kind of your thought process at that time? I think I had uh, like kind of radically little concern for a career, which like, okay. um, you know, probably says a lot about me. Um, and <laughs> and I, kind of like, I kind of came like that kind of smashed into that reality after leaving, um, which is, I think, one of the uh, illnesses of liberal arts education. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, you know, the, the turn to art was kind of generated by another professor during undergrad I, I guess mm. now that I'm thinking about it I had my undergraduate education was in, incredibly impactful which was the art historian Molly Nesbitt who's um this in, oh yeah she's incredible she's like she's yeah. like a cult following at the school she wears the coolest like all black witchy outfit and there's just a coterie of like undergrad following yeah. her everywhere she goes um and she she well, she only really lectures and her lectures are always in this like dark, beautiful lecture halls um, where she just kind of like does this like spellbinding uh, narratives about the development of, uh, of art history. And um, she, I think a lot of students who took her class, um, who took her classes, got kind of infected with um, the potential that she was, you know, laying out in art that isn't necessarily so much there anymore i mean maybe it is maybe you need a trust fund for it to be there i don't know <laughs> but I think, uh, yeah. for yeah. a lot of us we uh we kind of came out of it thinking like oh my god we can become robert smithson you know and like that that right. would be a way to exist in the world um and then actually the kind of the thing that really that kind of set it off set me off along that way was um that i i actually right after studying at vassar i went and worked for a few months um, as a park ranger on Catalina Island. Um, yeah, okay. uh, I don't know. They were they were not so happy to see me when I arrived because it was a phone interview, and I've like literally, uh, you know, never never lifted a weight before. Um, <laughs> but I was, I, was, um, I was there with my like long time friend and often collaborator Carly Packer, who um, is a, a curator and uh, uh, other things in the art world um, now. And we started our kind of collaborative practice at that time because we had we had absolutely nothing to do. There, there wasn't really even an internet connection, so we had like three books and just started making um, what would become like the the genesis of our practice which was um, at first 
uh, around creating these uh, encyclopedias of this sort. Um, mm, right. uh, and uh, uh, so that was, so that was kind of going on. Um, and then, and then we weirdly got kind of like the, our escape route from Catalina um, was this 89 plus project that took us all of a sudden to London. So we were really confused. Like we thought like, Oh my God, like, right. we're, we're hanging out at the Serpentine gallery right now. Like this is what it's going to be like. And it's like, no, it is not going to be like that. This is a weird thing. Um, so right. That kind of like um, confused us in a productive way um, and really, kind of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, lit a fire under us to a degree. Um, but then I, I guess I should also say that concurrently with that, I was always still doing a bit of my own. Um, I was working independently, making my own video work, which was always had one foot in architecture. And um, mm-hmm. I like I, it was it was not just like simply concerned with spatiality, but there's always some level of which it was there was maybe a critique of architecture happening at some level, like a, in the, of the discipline happening at some level in it. And also um, mm-hmm. in some way, I've always been been interested and in, I don't know where this idea came from but of maybe what happens when you produce in ways that are outside of uh kind of the the typical media of architectural representation but then just say it's architecture so like <laughs> I make a video right and this is right. architecture and like it maybe nothing comes of that but um it's always been an idea that I guess has kind of propelled me yeah I I think that's so interesting and that's something that I think about and all the time in my own work and comes up on the podcast a lot about the, these words design and architecture, I feel like are so much more fluid than we sometimes allow them to mm-hmm. be. Um, and I, I think, you know, I would love to talk a little bit about your two projects, uh, adjustment agency and interiors agency, which I feel like are leaning into this idea of questioning what architecture is or working in a space that maybe is not what we can traditionally think of as architecture, but calling it architecture or calling it design in some mm-hmm. way. And I will admit, I know very little about both adjustments agency and interiors agencies. The websites are very mysterious. Yeah. Um, yeah. And from what I could find in my research, there were a kind of variety of different forms that these uh, these take. Can you talk about both of those and what what those are and kind of how you think about them? Yeah, sure. I mean, so both actually, I guess uh, adjustments agency developed a bit more organically. It's still kind of oh, it's always in a strange gestational period um, uh, where we're trying to figure out exactly what we're doing. Um, uh, interiors agency, I guess, uh, which is my more recent practice. I just started. I just kind of officially announced it a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a bit more concrete in its uh, goals. But um, so adjustments agency, I guess, to go chronologically, I started, um, gosh, I guess like four years ago now um, with uh, Joanna Kloppenberg, who is um, my co-conspirator in many forums. She's the deputy editor of the journal I um, edit, Ed, and um, we hang out all the time um uh um, she's you know amazing um uh we kind of we we were friends actually she went to uh vassar with me um and um Mm. we kind of reconnected uh the chicago biennial the first iteration of the chicago biennial and um she was there uh representing architizer i was there representing archonnect and um i think we just kind of were talking about 
the fact that we didn't really think the exhibition was that cool, that like we could make cooler exhibitions or something, like why are exhibitions are so boring? Like let's try and do one. Yeah. And so that kind of like was like at first where we started. It, it was um we from the get-go conceived of ourselves um through what we like kind of our tagline, which is an architecture of architecture studio. And right. and that that kind of that actually is a it's a ripoff from um, uh, a passage uh, by Derrida um, in his essay Pont de Folie, um, where he describes architecture as um, like down to its very foundations constructed, that there is an architecture of architecture, mm-hmm. that it's, it, we inherit it, it appears to us as normal, so normal to the fact, to, to, the, uh, to the extent that in fact, it gets deployed as if um, it's a thing in itself that is, you know, very knowable by philosophy and, and that's a that's a big concern of his more so than actually speaking directly towards architecture itself but that just that little right. idea kind of like became the germ for um i guess uh, a mode of practice that is um a kind of a, a, a meta critique of the discipline although we we struggle with that um, we've struggled with that a lot so we, yeah we started um with uh curation and, and uh tried to essentially we, we were aware of basically this kind of issue where you go to these big biennials and stuff and and um th- it's essentially a gift economy where um, <laughs> yeah. where where you're expected to put in uh, like in, incredible time and labor with no actual form of remuneration or the remuneration rarely uh, covers even the cost of production let alone serves as a source of income and yet it's always with this kind of like um this, this promise of uh, of social capital that unfortunately right. in architecture is um, not so exchangeable with money capital. And, and I think that's a, a recurrent concern of ours um, is, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, this is great, but, you know, how do you make ends meet? There's a kind of a, a presupposition that everyone is, um, comes from an inheritance class, I think, in architecture. Um, and... Uh, mm. So we were trying to think of how can we, well, I think first we wanted to just do this exhibition and the exhibition was going to be like, it's about all of architecture, <laughs> like <laughs> creating like a space yeah. that like links together, like, like these dominant concerns right now, like ecology, technology, uh, like sociopolitics, and it weaves it together through like a cryptocurrency network or something. I don't know. Um, and then of course we were like, yeah. wait, how do we fund this? <laughs> and so that got right. us on that track. And, and so we, we made some experiments actually with cryptocurrency as a motive, uh, as a, as a motive. Oh, interesting. It, it really did not work m- much at all, except for the fact that I, um, kind of like I invested these little bits of money into, into various <laughs> cryptocurrencies, like small, small $10 here and there in order to then turn them into tokens. Right. Um, so that we could like, do our own essentially like a, a token sale um you can mm-hmm. kind of further divide them whatever um and the the one kind of happy accident of that was that when the kind of the crypto bubble was at its peak all of a sudden i like was like wait i think i might have some and i like <laughs> went through my browser history dating back like years and like found all these like old wallets and like somehow i had like almost at that point like a grand but then now it's like now it's like 400 bucks and I'm just not touching it. But yeah, that was like, that was the, um, the outcome of our uh, crypto adventures. Um, but from there, we um, let's see what 
from there we, we started writing. It was very kind of like we worked when we had time, both of us had full-time jobs. Um, mm-hmm. As it developed though, we, we kind of kept thinking like, what is it? That, yeah. What is it we're focusing on? And so we kept with the exhibition culture for a while. It, it was a recurrent source of interest to us because I think we realized we didn't have any um, place within the professional sphere of things that like our natural home would be the, let's say the expanded field of architecture that exists in mm. uh, biennials and books. Um, but then we found, you know, we, we, you know, we found ourselves at, in Chicago um, at the biennial staring at the posters that are emblazoned with the BT logo at the bottom and our stomach turned. Mm. And so <laughs> that set us off on this whole thing about corporate sponsorship and the way in which architecture uh, is not only kind of enmeshed within these systems of, uh, of, of extraction, exploitation, and, and various forms of violence at the level of construction and practice, which, you know, is, uh, is a huge concern of ours, but is something relatively well known, but also even at the level of its um, discourse. And mm. it kind of set us off thinking, I mean, we, so we then started this, uh, something like a shame campaign um, against, um, the sponsorship of BP for the second iteration of Chicago Biennial. We're going to kind of take up again in a more f- maybe hopefully forceful way this year for this iteration. Um, although like this is, we've, we've largely left uh, the shores of exhibition culture besides that. Um, but um, what kind of provoked us and what recurrently provokes us is this question, like what is the real of architecture? And, and I don't mean that in like, more like, yeah like psychoanalytic sense but in the sense of like what literally has a more substantial impact on right, right. In the built environment on, on the built the, the, the production of the built environment you know um a exhibition that a couple hundred hundred people see that has some interesting speculative work about the effects of climate change um or like drones in new delhi or something um mm-hmm. or you know the multinational conglomerate that is responsible for the largest uh, oil spill in the history of oil spills, redesigning an ecosystem and, and economies, but also, you know, pivotal in the overthrow of Mohammed Mozadegh, the democratically elected premier of Iran, who was replaced by the Shah and then in turn precipitated the Iranian revolution, et cetera, et cetera. So we looked at, we, we decided like, what happens if we actually just um, take the appellation of architect and reapply it to these other forces, these other um, and um, mm-hmm. what then emerges of kind of like out of that, like what kind of picture of uh, uh, I guess uh, spatial authorship, so to speak. What I think is interesting is that you are uh, in a way critiquing the you are not just critiquing architecture, you're also critiquing architecture, discourse, architecture, culture, uh, critiquing architecture criticism in a way. And you're doing it through all of these different modes. You are staging exhibitions, you are doing kind of online things, you are doing um, writing, you are doing kind of design projects. And I I, I have two questions around that. And the first one is, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on... Um, format and medium and the roles or benefits of working across these different mediums or working in these different formats to talk about 
these same topics to not just, you know, you could very easily write an essay about this, but you're, and you do that, but then you're also, you know, staging an exhibition or, or, you know, kind of putting together a show or, or actually making a, a project around it. Uh, how do you think about all of that and thinking about kind of contributing to the discourse, critiquing the discourse, but in non-traditional forms, you know what I, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I guess, I guess part of that is just kind of a, 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 there's some level in which it's innate because we're both um, strangers to design in a way. I mean, mm-hmm. Joanna, for instance, has, has no real interest in, in designing. That's always been something that I've, that I, that's been more me than, mm. than her. Um, we, we develop the uh, concepts very collaboratively and we write, write very collaboratively, but any kind of design aspect is usually spearheaded by me. And, and that's because I've always, I mean, like forever, my mom was a graphic designer and my dad was a photojournalist. I was raised in production. Oh. So I, um, okay. yeah, so I, like I was raised with an exacto blade in my, in my baby now. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, so, so that's always been something that I've been interested in, but then, um, and I've always, you know, I've always kind of dabbled in coding and, and, and these different things. Um, and for me, it's really a question of like um, efficacy. What is the best way to convey um, ideas um, and also just on some level experimentation you know like with with, with curating in particular um, that's for us always been very kind of an experiment in seeing what we could do that is um, heavily an experiment with um, that is kind of like very aware of its own limitations primarily its economic and material limitations mm-hmm. um, and it, yeah. I should say actually like really briefly to kind of um, catch up to adjustments agency in recent years, because we did, as I said, really kind of abandon uh, exhibition culture in a lot of ways, because I think for us, uh, our kind of, we did all this work in it and um, we kind of came like smack into this thing that we're like, maybe they're not redeemable. Maybe they're just not that interesting. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe like um, this isn't actually like that interesting to endlessly critique because maybe it's like, this is just, like, yeah, they're just, they are what they are or something. And, and maybe they're more interesting things right. to talk about. And so from there, we really shifted to um, a lot of research on um, financialization and its relationship to architecture on kind of two levels. The first being the financialization of the profession um, over the last like 20, 30 years. Um, and in particular, the um, mainly through Joanna's uh, individual independent research um, on the role of uh, CAD software and BIM software as a vehicle for that. Um, and then on the other hand, which would be, I guess, more my research, um, although they, they, when I say her or mine, they're, they're always blurring together um, and we're always talking, um, yeah. but um, would be the kind of the way in which architecture acts um, as um, essentially a, um, a, a media of finance capital that um which mm-hmm. like so just essentially to see how like what if there's uh the financialization of architecture what is the architecture of financialization and in particular um can we understand um financialization is not just a spatial process um something that takes uh takes on space spatial form and built form but also something that is even perhaps a um a, a somatic technology something that redesigns um 
the body down to perhaps even the molecular mm. level. And a lot of um, my research into the subprime mortgage crisis came out, um, kind of was oriented around that thesis. And that kind of culminated in a talk we delivered in at the Milan Triennale last summer. Um, and then after that, we were uh, both like knee deep, knee deep isn't deep enough um, to describe how deep we were <laughs> in um, our thesis, master's thesis projects. We were, both were um, attending uh, Columbia at the time. And um, mm-hmm. we had this, the semester before we had been like writing, doing these projects. We curated this exhibition with um, the New York curator, Jessica Kwok, that just like sapped us of energy and money and um, all this. We just, we got burnout, uh, like put it simply. And um, I guess what we wanted to do is rather than um, just totally just say, you know, no, to like to analyze our our burnout, to, to take that as a symptom of something. And then that kind of culminated mm. in, in an essay that we wrote for Harvard Design Magazine in the fall yeah. called, um, yeah, Refu- uh, Refusal After Refusal, which was, um, you know, it, it's kind of this meandering uh, essay broken up into little chunks um, that's like heavily autobiographical. And we've, we've gotten quite a bit of blowback from for, for that um, that speaks to our own dissatisfaction um, and kind of tries to, with the profession, with the discipline, um, and tries to think that concurrently with um, kind of like the broader realities of the discipline to kind of expand from the, 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 the personal into a political, um, so to speak. Right. Um, and, uh, that was a very cathartic practice for us. Um, and it also, I guess it was kind of getting back to what you were saying about the idea of, uh, a critique, even if critique, I mean, I think one thing that we're really always very interested in, and, and this comes from, uh, a, this, you know, is just, uh, very much uh, comes from our own feminist politics is that uh, criticism in theory require uh, the intrusion of the personal and that they're kind of siloing or ghettoization outside of the fear of discourse does a disservice to it. Um, and so that, that, that was something that, yeah, I think that was a very exciting thing for us as much as it was, as it was also very much of honest, like cry for help. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 so glad that you brought that piece up because I wanted to talk to you about it a little bit because I loved it um, and I felt like it spoke to so much of my experience in graphic design and especially as somebody who's interested in like we've been talking about this whole conversation, kind of the edges of graphic design and and how does graphic design exist? Can graphic design exist outside of in service to capital and someone who's interested in how we talk about graphic design and you know i've recorded so many of these these uh interviews with people who are interested in graphic design discourse but the thing that comes up again and again is we don't have time we have so much work to do there's no money in the the discourse side of it and i feel like that essay the refusal after refusal touches on so much of that can you talk more about that kind of what you were talking about in regards to discourse and kind of bring in the personal, maybe even a little bit about the blowback that you got from it and how you see your role as a critic 
maybe, I don't know if you would call yourself a critic, but as somebody who's kind of in that critical discourse within architecture, how does that all fit together? How do you think about all of that? I, I, I guess I, uh, I'm not really sure if I consider myself a critic or if I, I'm, I'm always kind okay. of afraid of any, um, any concrete label because that, yeah, that comes yeah. with things that like, it comes with a certain weight that I'm not sure I can shoulder, but um, it, it, I do critique. So um, uh, right. Um, yeah, I, I guess to, to speak to like, some of the blowback, I mean, we, we were, we were, it was seemed like it was largely really, really well received. I mean, we got a lot of people who reached out to us um, and, and I think it, it kind of spoke to them on a, on a personal level. Um, I guess that gets to one of the things about adjustments agencies. We're always really interested in just saying things like we're not necessarily developing and we've been critiqued on other projects for this as well. We're not necessarily developing novel critiques as much as, Mm. saying things and just saying them again and again and louder um and putting them together in different ways we're not trying to you know like break the wheel we're just trying to like it's like sure someone critiqued bp the bp sponsorship of uh chicago biennial four years ago but yeah it's still happening so hence you should probably do it again but um so there is a critique of its novelty which we thought was kind of strange particularly because one of the things that we were discussing was the way in which novelty mm-hmm. is privileged in architecture and how that is kind of mm-hmm. um, a, a fundamental engine of its uh, of capitalist development more broadly is the fetishization of novelty and the fetishization of novel forms, um, which end up you know mm-hmm. serving as a means to um, essentially generate new forms for the expenditure of surplus capital. So that was, I mean, that was a big piece of it that we were kind of confused by. But I think a, a, a critique that um, that most provoked us or most we found most um i don't know that at once kind of like uh pr- like it was productive on the other hand we felt kind of misread um which is, is definitely the danger of you know talking about your own depression in an essay publishing mm-hmm. um is mm-hmm. that you know then it makes critique more difficult um like critique of your critique more difficult and, and that's something that, you know, right with the, right you know, we, we, we're aware of and, and grapple with, or try to grapple with, but um, that essentially, I think there was a, a and the critique came from um, some fr- like friends of ours, people I would consider friends, um, if not necessarily like personal friends, at least, you know, internet friends, um, <laughs> yeah, friends yeah. Um, uh, ARC lobby people. And I, I'm a big fan of the ARC lobby, a big supporter of it, a member. Um, and, and I think their critique kind of in some part oriented around this idea of laziness, which was central to it, and the idea of refusing mm-hmm. to work and um, arguing for the value of kind of uh, productive depression and um, like uh, of lying down, let's say. Um, I, <laughs> as someone tweeted, I believe, like... Um, like uh, a link to their, their critique, which was that like, you know, like this is why I, I think about the, the fucking lying down as a form of politics, <laughs> and um, yeah. you know, and theirs was very much what we thought, you know, was very much kind of a, a reification of this idea that politics must always be in the active tense, and um, I think that there's a, a really strong argument to, I mean, on the one hand, <laughs> like to speak quite literally to lying down to to refusal as a, a form of politics with a very long history. I mean, the strike is a form of refusal and is probably still the most efficacious form of political action or one of the most uh, efficacious that we have available to us. But um, there's also the idea of, um, 
of you know what Black Lives Matter protesters were doing, which is lying down in the street and and therefore exposing the vulnerability of their bodies within a system in which you know their bodies are rendered into um, into into mere cogs within, I guess you could say, like the kind of machinery of capital. Um, uh, so there, there's there's that element which uh, which was part of our thinking. Um, but then there's also, I guess, maybe more fundamentally, the idea of um, a prone body versus um, an erect body. And that comes actually from a, a reading of uh, Virginia Woolf um, and her essay, Waves, um, uh, in which she discusses kind of uh, lying at the shores um, of like kind of this like lapping sea and um, how the erect body, so to speak, and this is, you know, all figurative language, that um, kind of mirrors the erectness of the eye, um, of the eye, quite literally, like the, the glyph eye, um, but also kind of like mm-hmm. the construction of a subject that exists autonomously and agentially in the world. Um, and to oppose that with that of a prone body as a body that is receptive. Um, and so um, it is receptive and it is um, kind of like, vulnerable and in its vulnerability can uh, receive perhaps something else or or can have a shift in perspective. And so, so much of the thrust of that argument was that we're just working so much. We're so kind of entrenched within this neoliberal work ethic. And, and, and I can't say that in any way I've made even like the slightest bit of escape from that. Um, <laughs> but there, there's basically no time to think to, to like to stop right. and measure um the worth of uh, your actions, but also the kind of like to measure your politics, to, to, to grapple with, are you happy or not? Um, and I think that there is a way that that can be construed, that kind of thinking as very much kind of like an individualist, maybe bourgeois idea that like the orientation, the end of uh, politics should be one's own personal happiness, which is definitely not what we're arguing for and, and, and ends with a kind of call for collective action um, and the necessity of collective action as opposed to individual action. But um, mm-hmm. I think that for us, there, um, there, there, there is um, always uh, something that is recurrent interest to us is, is discussing affect and discussing the personal and discussing the subjective and, and the way in which the subject gets formed um, in order to kind of, uh, to, to kind of more fundamentally reorient um, ourselves in relationships to broader systems. I, I want to try to connect this a little bit, or at least connect it back to something you were talking about earlier. I want to talk about Archonnect a little mm-hmm. bit and and the journal Ed that you edit. And I, I guess the first question, which is kind of a, a connecting directly back to what you were just talking about, is I'm curious how your work with adjustments agency and these other projects that you're doing, how do they shape or influence the writing that you're doing for Archonnect or editing ed, which I guess we should say is, is like a printed journal that Archonnect produces that you're the editor of. Um, how do these ideas kind of filter back into that writing? And especially these ideas around, you know, not having time to think is, are there ways that you can kind of have or, or ways that you can kind of set up that writing and that publication to be slower, more thoughtful, yeah, deeper, yeah. 
You know what I mean? 100%. I think absolutely. I think the last year in many ways was kind of this existential, like extended existential crisis for me and, <laughs> and adventure for Joanna as well. Um, and um, in the sense of burnout, but um, also, you know, there was uh, my dad was ill at the time and all these things were kind of happening mm-hmm. that um, shifted my, I guess, uh, what I valued, what seemed to matter. And so an issue, the, the third issue of Ed, which just came out and which is called normal um, mm. uh, and, and, and tries to kind of uh, to hash out the normative orientations of architecture, as well as the way in which it produces and presumes a normative body um, as its user um, among other things. Um, right. That was supposed to come out in maybe October and it ended up coming out in August this year. Um, and, mm. and the uh, shout out to all the contributors and their incredible patience with it. Um, but it was, it was very much like it wasn't simply, I guess, the thoughts that were in uh, refusal after refusal. And then they seeped heavily into normal. Um, my, uh, my editor's introduction is very much just kind of like a rejection of the typical mode of introduction. Um, uh, yeah. uh, the, uh, um, I think it, I mean, it was, it was very real and very felt. Um, and, and I, I, I guess that's like, that comes to the heart of it is I think I just, it got to this point where it was like, yeah, I, like these things need to be kind of approached and they can't just be siloed with an academic discourse around like affect theory or something. They need to be like embodied in practice. And so Ed um, is always been, I mean, Ed is like kind of the most, ridiculous thing i was just uh, paul um who is the editor uh, who's the founder and publisher of arconnect is uh like as i'm describing as the only good boss around he's like angel mm-hmm. patron nice. who just like like i was like i, I you know i want to make a print publication he was like sure i'll just dump a bunch of money into it um and like nice. and um you know obviously a print publication is not a cash cow in 2019 um, yeah, he really has a, he's really, you know, kind of like this antiquated, uh, or like, a anachronistic, uh, like model of a patron that doesn't really exist that much anymore. And, um, I'm like so appreciative for everything that he's provided for me, um, and the kind of opportunities he's given me, he's like giving me full control over Ed and, uh, where it goes and what it does and mm, pace nice. of it and all these things. He like, there's never any level of, uh, of, uh, you know, there's no circumscription of, of it at all. It's fantastic. Um, and so yeah, like at the get go, the, the first issue was titled the architecture of architecture, which is the same as what adjustments right. agency is. Right. And so it actually, it really, they, they, they bleed into one another in some ways Ed is a, a research wing of, of our, of adjustments agency. Mm. Oh, that's a, that's an interesting way to think about it. Yeah, yeah, where we get to like essentially uh, have other people help us develop ideas that we're interested in as well. Um, you know, we get to, like, right. get like some of the great thinkers around right now and have them think about this provocation of what is the architecture of architecture. So it's it's been really kind of great. And then now we're I guess we're uh, we're going to uh, start anytime sometime soon the, the fourth issue. Um, although I think this will be again, a, a kind of a more leisurely pace. Um, I mean, and one of the realities of that is just like, you know, we all have to work. Like it's, it's just really hard to right. like, assemble a bunch of writers who are all have other jobs 
primarily exploitative teaching jobs. Um, <laughs> uh, also selves. Yeah. Um, and, and so to kind of like to realize there actually isn't really any necessity to having things come out on this rapid clip, especially because it's not like it's, you know, it's not none of it's super necessarily topical. I mean, some of it is more than others, but, you know, it's a print journal. So the content. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, and yeah, so it, it's um, this one will kind of, I think, even and push that even even further. Um, it's always kind of there's always been this idea. I mean, the second is- issue was themed disaster, but and it dealt with uh, issues related to climate change mm-hmm. and other ecological catastrophe. But at the same time, a, a recurrent concern of it was, can we perceive disaster um, within the logic of architecture? Is there a disaster of architecture that we can right. parse? Um, and then, yeah, again, the third one was normal. And, and, and again, this kind of confrontation with norms. And so maybe at a certain point, maybe I'll, I'll, this will become a, a boring uh, line of reason. Um, you know, I keep hitting it against, you know, hitting it over and over again on the head. Yeah. But uh, for now, you know, it keeps me uh, somewhat intrigued. Although I guess maybe to segue uh, into interiors agency or some other form, it, it's, it's paralleled increasingly with maybe the um, a, a kind of s- at least putting one foot again outside of architecture after having both feet in for a while. I think now again, I'm kind of trying to expand my repertoire. You know, you mentioned interiors agency, and I did want to come back to that. And and you started that earlier this summer, yeah. right? It, it seems fairly recent. Can you talk about what that is and how that maybe fits into all of this other stuff that we've been talking about? Totally. Yeah. I mean, for for one, I guess uh, none of these um, containers are very airtight. Um, they all together. Like, so interiors agency. Um, it, it kind of it emerged out of the fact that for I guess like the several years now. I've been interested in the construction of the interior um, in, in particular, mm. um, not just in, in the sense of, you know, I mean, the interior being a fascinating scenario now, and I'm saying interior in a very kind of typical sense of the word um, to mean like a literal domestic interior predominantly, I think, you know, there's, it's at the um, right. vanguard of uh, a lot of the most kind of, uh, dramatic changes in the way we live today. And I think that, I think that's something that a lot of uh, young practices are also similarly interested in um, both in terms of technology of politics um, of uh, sociality and uh, you know, economy Um, it's kind of at the nexus of all these forces in a a very dramatic way. Um, But I guess even more than that, um, something that's been, recurrent and an increasing interest of mine is uh is decorating is um decorating not in the sense of professionalized you know not not in its professionalized garb um as interior design um so or interior architecture so much as decorating that everyone does to some degree or another um and and right. it, it, that became um i wrote an essay several years ago for eflux called mere decorating yeah and that that was about kind of the kind of historical aspersion of decorating which is just uh, like it kind of uh, epitomized in the phrase mere decorating or merely decorative um that litters the the western canon uh both uh within architecture but also philosophy um and cultural criticism etc um I mean, everyone from uh, 
Kant, Hegel, to mm-hmm, Deleuze mm-hmm. and uh, Kuhlhaas make use of it. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 it. It became kind of like this like ridiculous obsession of mine to like find and underline it as I'm writing, uh, as I'm reading stuff. Um, but to, to, I, I started thinking like, it, you know, there's been a, a tremendous amount of scholarship on the uh, the kind of disparagement of ornament and uh, the decorative, so to speak, in architecture uh, post-modernity um, or, uh, you know, at the onset of modernity that was has since been, you know, to a certain degree recuperated by architecture, primarily thanks to the work of feminist scholars. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of taking the decorative, taking the ornamental and putting it once again in service of architecture. Um, but I, I, I always had the suspicion that on a kind of more fundamental level, and if you look at the historical canon, considering, you know, if Kant is is uh, using decorative to mean insignificant. It, it predates uh, the advent of, of, of modern architecture. Predates, predates, uh, predates Adolf Luce, um, mm-hmm. uh by a long shot. Um, that uh, there, that there perhaps it has more to do with not so much surface application, so to speak, as decorating, and as which I argue is a. For, and what I've done a lot of my recent work has been about is uh, looking at decorating as a form of labor, which um, it does not necessarily mm. appear as such due to its historical disparagement. Um, and also to, to a series of, it's kind of, what I'm interested in is there's kind of like this parallel uh, forces happening. On the one hand, uh, decorating is disparaged, trivialized, uh, et cetera. On the other, it's invested with a series of promises that are, Really, I mean, just on even like kind of like the slightest with the slightest pressure fall apart. Um, primarily, the idea that decorating is a mode of self-expression that it can somehow represent right. the subject who decorates in a way that is legible to the guest. Um, and mm. to me, I mean, it, it you know you just have to kind of think for one second about it. It's like how on earth, like let's presume. <laughs> Let's make a, a massive philosophical mm-hmm. presumption that there is such a thing as a stable self. How on earth could I represent that through um, my commodity, uh, my, the commodity purchase, right. which is circumscribed by my income and by my location, what stores are around me, by you know, like a, a host of factors which inform the way in which one decorates. Um, and uh, what I've glossed over so far is how fundamental. Uh, to that is um, the kind of the, the the twinning of or the the, the association between decorating and women. That uh, dec- decorating mm-hmm. is a form of labor. It is a form of women's labor, and its uh, historical mm-hmm. uh, trivialization can be conce- uh, can be understood if you take a kind of a broader look at the diminishment of women's work. Um, advent of early yeah. And from that, I, I, I I'm, my work is heavily informed by Silvio Federici. Um, I guess this kind of uh, this all these this this these thoughts kind of culminated in my uh, my master's thesis, which um, was also then the first project of Interiors Agency, and that um, is okay. a book called The Uses of Decorating. It's a series of essays that look at how um, they kind of make a first an economic analysis of of decorating, arguing it's a, a form of primitive accumulation. And the I think the most foundational economic value of decorating is that it produces the home as such. It creates the appearance mm-hmm. of the home as something legible as home. 
and home being defined as the space that is not the factory um, since kind of the advent of capitalism, if you take a kind of traditional Marxian approach. So that was kind of, yeah, that's the the short of it, the long short of it, um, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, which doesn't even talk about the practice, but... Um, yeah, well, it's interesting. This this actually is a, a nice way to connect back to something that you said at the beginning that I kind of wanted to come back to, and I think can be a way that we can kind of close out the conversation uh, a little bit. Is something we've been talking kind of around this whole conversation is is writing and how much of your work it does take the form of writing. And you said very early in this conversation that you got the job at Archonnect and you didn't really think you're a good writer. You still don't know if you're a good writer if you would call yourself a writer but you've kind of developed a voice and it's so clear through this whole conversation, how much writing you are doing. Uh, I'd like to close the conversation talking just a little bit about writing and kind of your evolution as a writer, how you think about writing as it relates to these other things that you're doing. What's, what's the role of writing in your own work? Yeah, I I guess, uh, I don't know, kind of like it, in a, on a very simple level, I conceive of it as just one of many media in which to make work. Mm-hmm. And so with an interior agency, which um, I'm similarly to how I might have once presented myself as a fake architect, I'm now a fake interior designer, um, where interior mm-hmm. agency conceives itself as a design practice fundamentally, but using the media of writing or mm-hmm. web design, graphic design, uh, publishing, mm-hmm. home goods, decorating, etc., as um, as as its uh, kind of like modes of practice. Um, and mm-hmm. so, what happens if you kind of conceive of writing as a way as something that not just can be used to help parse out this uh, an interior, for example? Um, for me, writing is simply just one of modes of many that I can take. It's uh, it, it doesn't require anything besides a laptop, which is great. And um, right. I mean, actually, I mean, to be frank, I, I, I don't enjoy writing very much. It, it's incredibly laborious for me. Um, and like a immense, like, like, uh, kind of like, self-conscious, uh, like self-loathing exercise. Um, more so than like, like yeah. I love designing, like I absolutely love making a website, or making some like graphic thing. Like, that's uh-huh. so fun um I, but writing is like you know torture um and yeah i guess as it's developed though for me i think uh circling back that as i'm as i'm working on writing now the, the stuff that i've been doing now um even if it is later kind of uh edited out almost always now begins via my personal experience and and, and using that trying to really I mean for me writing like when I start I, I never outline I never have a very clear idea of what I want to say it, it, I, I have to write it all out and then see what came of that and kind of rewrite that all out it like takes like so I mean as a form of income it's like as a source of income it's terrible because I put in like, like if I was to like actually calculate which I can't do because you know I never really studied math at all but if I calculate <laughs> it, I think I probably am getting paid like 95 cents an hour or something um, when I'm yeah, yeah, um, but um, it's a, it, 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 there's a lot it enables, and I think I, I guess the the more I do it, the more as much as I, I still struggle while I'm doing it, um, the, it really kind of has become more creative. So um, 
it, and one mm. of those things was, I guess, coming from Arconnect, which is a, a popular architecture website. You know, it's not academic um, in any way. And I, uh-huh. I, I, I've never really felt comfortable completely in academic writing either. Um, that's always, I've been kind of estranged from it. Um, and so I don't think I could ever be a proper academic mm-hmm. because of that. But um, yeah, uh, the, increasingly I like, I get, I, I have some fun with, uh, with constructing sentences and finding out things. Yeah. Um, to the point that sometimes now I'll write these things that I don't actually publish. I publish just like on Twitter or something, like in a Google Doc, which are like, mm, like nice. purple prose or something, but like I had a lot of fun with it. So like maybe yeah. I'm getting more comfortable with, with being a writer, like uh, going into like my 10th year of being one. No, I love that. I, I, I kind of feel the same way. I, um, Michael Beirut, when I talked to him, had this great line where he says he hates writing, but he likes, he loves having written. And I, I feel like that's exactly how I feel. It sounds like that's kind of how you feel also. But um, I, I love the way you're kind of talking about approaching it more creatively, almost kind of as a design project uh, in an interesting way. Um, which I love. And I think, I think that's like a great way to kind of wrap up this whole conversation. Thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. This was really fun. This episode was recorded on August 14th, 2019. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.